Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. It is the 3rd of December. Christmas Eve will be three weeks away, and Sid and I both have our trees up and uh, have our Christmas carols going, and and then Sid, in 23 days, uh, your tree comes down. Yeah, well, that's as mandated by my husband. That, that's about as long as it can stay up. That's, but I don't mind it. You know, once honestly, once about five o'clock on Christmas Day hits, it's over. Yeah, it does happen the same way with Christmas music. I'll listen to it, and then, yeah, about early evening Christmas Day, it's like, okay, one last round, and then uh, it's off for next year. <laughs> it's funny. It's almost like, it's almost like okay, well, it's almost like sex. Like, after you orgasm, you're like, why did I even do that? <laughs> like, once, once Christmas well, night hits, I'm like, why did, I even listen, why did I even listen to all that music? I know. <laughs> you know what? Every guy listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I don't think I say, why did I do that? It's sort of like, okay, um, what's on TV right now? Yeah, all right. It's like, yeah, okay, oh, this is fine. Next up. All right. I wonder how the Patriots did today. I missed the game. So, <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, I mean, we have which only a couple more shows before we're off for because Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve are on Thursday this year, so we will not be uh, – Doing that, and um, well, we should do maybe one on Wednesday or something. That those those two weeks we should end up the year with some recap stuff. Like, and we're going to have some year-end recap content. Yes, we are having uh, <coughs> athlete of the year, hero of the year, asshole of the year, all the stuff we had last year. We're going to have again this year coming up on Outsports. Um, so we have a guest on in a few minutes, Andrea Barone, a pro hockey ref who came out. He's the first in the sport to come out as openly gay. He wrote a terrific story. And you had one yesterday that's gotten some good attention by a gay pro surfer. And that's a sport you would think would be really open to gay people, but we've known historically there's been a lot of homophobia in, in surfing. And how did you come across uh, this surfer? You know what's funny? Some Somebody wrote, to, tweeted at me or wrote me an email, I can't remember what it was, and said, hey, you should profile this guy. And I'd never heard of him. And the, and the link was to a a, a Facebook post this this Craig Butler posted back in April, saying, "Hey, I'm gay," and and it's just amazing to me that a professional surfer could slip through our cracks. And and what's even more is he he's actually in a movie, a documentary film that we helped promote and we wrote about called Out in the Lineup, and we didn't even realize that he was in it. So. It's just it, it's amazing, and people say how many athletes are out. I we have absolutely no idea. We can probably guess how many are publicly out, but even some of those we don't we don't know about. We just miss them. So, just somebody said, "Hey, why haven't you guys read about this guy?" It's like a good question. Yeah, we've gotten that from time to time. It's kind of like, how did you miss so and so? And like, well, because we don't follow whatever sport they're talking about. Um, but again, as we say, it's almost like until there's some publicity about them, they don't have the same public outness. Although I guess you could have searched. I guess you could have. Could you have searched his name in the word "gay" and discovered it? Oh yeah, uh, he was. It was not. It was not a. It was not a. Uh, it was not a secret. 
Not a secret at all. So it was all out there. But what's cool about it is because it's um, it's been a sport that has had a lot of homophobia. I mean, I know the gay surfing group has had, you know, to kind of have privacy and everything like that. And uh, so to have that up is great. Um, but let's change gears to another sport, um, ice hockey. And on the line with this is Andrea Barone from where you at, where you at now today, Dre? I'm in Knoxville right now. I just got in. In Knoxville, Knoxville uh, Tennessee. Except, well, you know what? Actually, Knoxville is it Knoxville? There's a there's a place. How long are you there for? Uh, Till Saturday. Okay, there's a place there called Littons. L y t t o n s. Go to Littons. Trust me. Listen to me. Go to Littons. Get the get a hamburger rare and get the coconut cake. And I, I will expect a thank you note on Facebook after you do. All right. All right, consider it done. Well, you are, um, Dre is in, and everyone calls him Dre, um, is in Knoxville. He's a referee with the Southern Professional Hockey League and also the East Coast Hockey League, which are basically sort of the minor league feeder system for officials into the NHL. And uh, Dre's uh, dream is to be an NHL official, and this week he wrote a Great story about um, his coming out um, in the hockey world. You, your bosses knew you were writing it, so they were supportive. So I haven't talked to you uh, live since it ran. What has been the reaction um, since you wrote the story? Uh, it's all been positive. I haven't gotten one negative reaction or one negative comment online, and it's been shared quite a bit, uh, which is just really cool to see. And I got, I got um, maybe. 50 or 60 emails so far and another probably 30 or 40 Facebook messages and everything's been positive. It's been, yeah, it's been, um, it's been kind of, uh, overwhelming that not even one person has had something bad to say so far. Well, not that I've seen anyway, but anything, anybody surprise you any, I mean, any athletes or coaches or other fellow refs or, uh, not yet. I've actually had some about the last, uh, eight days off, so I haven't really seen anyone. Uh, I've gotten some of, some of my refs who already knew, obviously, and who read the story and just said, "Hey, great story. Uh, we support you and we're proud of you and all that and kind of thing," which is really nice. And uh, some some guys from who I used to work junior hockey with in Vancouver while I was living there, uh, I haven't heard from a while. Also, um, and a lot of yeah, a lot of people from the sports world on Facebook uh, message me. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people actually, a lot of athletes have come out throughout sports, uh, messaged me, and uh, yeah, so that was most pretty cool. What did you expect? Um, I didn't, I don't know what I, um, I kind of wrote it, um, thinking that I'm just kind of telling my story, and it's another. You know, there've been so many of them that I just thought it was it was important to do on my I, the reason why I did it is because no one no one has done it in hockey yet publicly, whether it was a player or a coach or referee or anything. So that's the reason why I did it. Um, but on the other spectrum of just sports in general and stuff like that, I thought there'd been so many of them that I didn't think. Uh, it, I thought, to be honest, that it would maybe just kind of uh, in all the uh, within all the other ones and with a few a few comments here and there. But I, I really didn't this much uh, reaction so quickly anyway and it get picked up by so many people I mean all my friends in Montreal are keep sending me 
screenshots of, of where they find the article online and uh, how many times it's been shared and all this stuff. And I'm, yeah, really, I wasn't expecting that. What was interesting about your story, and you said you you didn't get any negative reply, well, you've never had anything in your life negative about you being gay, and yet you write about this internalized homophobia and the torment. And it's an interesting dynamic that externally you got nothing but love from your family. You have a brother who himself is gay, and yet you couldn't sort of accept it yourself. Could you talk a little bit about that sort of dichotomy that – you know, the outside yeah, world guess. was basically embracing you, but you still kind of hated yourself. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the part that is different from my story, I guess, uh, now that you mention it. And I think about it, because reading all the other stories, I mean, obviously everyone had their own struggle, but and whether it was internal or not, they most people also had a uh, an external factor, uh, whether it was uh, someone, you know, a family member who wouldn't, come, who wouldn't come around or it took a while to come around and in that process, you know, made made it harder for, for the athlete or the person to come out. Uh, but for me, it was, um, I haven't had not even one person uh, through my whole experience uh, have a negative reaction, not to my face anyway, and not that I've heard of around. Um, I've heard people, you know, talking and stuff, but never, it's never anything negative. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's gay. Well, like, okay, I, I didn't know that. Or, you know, and they maybe kind of have the questions and it ends there. But, for myself, it was kind of like, yeah, it was, and I think that's the damage that the cultural homophobia in sports, and specifically hockey, does. Uh, and I'm, I think I'm a good example of that in the sense that I, it did so much damage early on to me that you know you can't be gay and play hockey, and you can't. Um, it's just not com- like I can always say it's not compatible. The and and it's just one of those things that um, really stuck with me, uh, and it caused me a lot of torment and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering uh within you know self this self torment and this 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 battle that I had with myself and no one else really which is really kind of strange to say but yeah well it it the, it's funny you know we try to dig into why these athletes uh when they have supportive parents everything ends up going great and there's not a single negative Respond not a single negative response, and you wonder. Everyone has the same story, and and you've obviously people have read stories in out sports, and they still think their experience is going to be negative. And it's this the general homophobia in sports tell this lie about how LGBT athletes are going to be accepted because we hear fag and that's so gay and and stuff in sports, and because. In men's sports, if you're weak, you're equated with gay, and you're equated with being a girl. Then you just you you come to this conclusion, not surprisingly, that that you're going to be rejected. And of course, every single time, it's the complete opposite every time. It's just I think, it's, but there's this lie about it. Absolutely, and I think one of the other things is that, especially in you know male-dominated sports, is that everyone it's so competitive. Um, especially at the professional level, it's so competitive day in and day out and that um, everyone's looking to get an edge on someone else and they're almost playing on that line. And, it's, I mean, it's getting better, but no one wants to – everyone has their guard up at all times. Um, that's just the way it is, especially, you know, on the, on the ice or on the field uh, and, you know, still in the locker rooms and around the building and around, around the game. Uh, but specifically, you know, while the game's going on, everyone has everyone has their guards that are, you know, as high as they can be, basically, the walls are up. And 
you don't want to show one inch of of weakness. And because of what you just said, it comes off as a weakness or comes off as, you know, inferior, not as strong or feminine or whatever. Um, That's why I think so many people kind of, so many closeted athletes kind of, you know, shy away from it because they they see it as, as putting their guard down in a certain way. And I always say that I've, in my experience, the only thing I've, I've kind of discovered is that you're you're actually most powerful when you're most vulnerable uh, because there's nothing to attack anymore. Um, just, so that's kind of how I approached it. it. Took me a while to figure that one out, but that's kind of how I approached it, and it worked so far anyway. Well, it's interesting because you had – tell us the anecdote about the player who said something on the ice. Oh, yeah. Um, sort of, this was it was a teaching season. moment or a learning moment, whatever. Yeah, it was near the end of last season, and I opened the piece with that, that little story, and it was um, – so the player asked me about a rule that something that just happened, which kind of never happens, is very rare, and no one really knows the rule. No one – it's not a rule you see very often. And uh, so, yeah, and he was asking me later about it, and um, and he kind of said he kind of was he wasn't even mad at me. He just wanted to know what it was. And we were just having a you know very very cordial conversation, and um, and he just I when I explained him the rule, he just uh, he just rolled his eyes and said, "Oh, that's a really gay. I mean, stupid rule." That's what he said. And he wasn't even mad at me. He was just telling you know just saying, "Oh, that's a, like that's a dumb rule. Like it's not your fault, but that's a dumb rule." And but the way he said it was, you know, he's going to say that was a, that's such a gay rule. And then he kind of caught himself in, right in the act, and he switched it around right away and said, that's stupid or dumb rule. Um, and he, I think, uh, I found out later at the end of the year that I think that that was the team uh, that I found out that I knew that I was gay, and it kind of went around the locker room. Uh, the word went around. And so I don't know if at that time he already knew or if he had just caught himself. But either way, I was kind of like, that's interesting. Well, how how often do you hear that stuff? And I've been... I've been officiating high school football now for not 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 your level obviously, but for three years, and and I've only heard one thing, and I've only heard of one other, and and these were the, the f bombs. <laughs> yeah. How often? I, how often do you hear that? Um, it kind of depends. Uh, you don't hear it as often as you used to. That's for sure. Um, but again, I'm not a good judgment because I think a lot of guys know that I'm gay, so they may not say it around me or, they, or you know. <laughs> Players can be kind of deceivingly smart in the sense that just like, you know, the you know the wacky guy when I'm not because they know I'm not looking and turn around when I turn around well I missed it. I, I think you know maybe with the 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 trash talk and that kind of stuff and maybe the same thing. Uh, linesmen here in hockey anyway hear, hear a lot more of the trash talk because they spend a lot of time uh, between the benches uh, during the play and uh, they're along the boards right between the benches. That's where a lot of it's said and they're also in the scrums in the fights. Um, so I, I still hear some of it, but I don't hear a lot of it. As for F-bombs and gay slurs, I mean, they still happen. Um, do they happen regularly? I wouldn't say every game, no. Not that I hear. Maybe it does. Um, but definitely every, every I'd say every three or four games or so, I'd hear at least one. Uh, and then I'd just, you know, if I, if I do hear it, I'll address it later on. Um, and But overall, it's mostly just, you know, habit. Right, it's not. It's just habit of saying it. But that's a lot. I, I mean, once every three or four games, that that's a lot to hear that language. Well, it's it's just one of those things that it's slowly going away. But um, you know, you, and it may it may just be very casual, like 
like, uh, you know, just like, oh, get out of here, you fag, or something like that. Uh, but I think he kind of it, and it's not everyone. Um, and hockey has this very has a big time trash talk uh, culture to it, where it's the kind of the game within the game, and you know, it's this constant, um, it's a constant ban- banter back and forth of who who has the best shirt, and it's it's literally all game long. Some guys do it more than others. Some guys don't do it at all. Other guys, that's basically their game um, to get under the, under the skin of, 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 you know, their opponent or whatever. Uh, and it's just nonstop, right? So I, and I don't hear it all. Uh, I, I don't hear most of it, in fact. Um, but sometimes, you know, when I do, I may, I may, I may catch, I may catch a slur or something like that. And, um, you know, you kind of address it right away. And I kind of, and how do you whenever, address it? Um, I'll just go over, I'll see who it is and I'll go over either if it's, if I have the time and place, if it's a time and place, I'll do it right there. And then I'll just go over and talk to the player. If it's not, I'll wait and at another stoppage or at a, a media timeout or whatever, I'll go over and talk to them. And I'll first of all say, Hey, I'm like, I'm like, don't, don't go around calling guys fags. Don't make, don't make a phone call, but don't make it racial. Nothing like that. No slurs. And most of the time he'll say, Hey, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm really sorry. It's not going to happen again. Uh, and then, you know, if they, I've had a few times where it had, had, most of the time that's a reaction. I'm really sorry if that happened again. But thanks, like thanks, thanks for letting me know. Uh, other times, uh, if they kind of roll, roll their eyes and go, "Yeah, sure, whatever, okay, I won't say anymore." That's when that, that's when then I'll go straight to the coach and address it right to the coach. I'll say I'll say something like, "Try to be nice to them and warn them about you know homophobic stuff and and stuff like that. If it's racial homophobic, I just warned them. I said you t- I'm gonna usually tell the coach you take care of it or next time I will." And coaches, you right away get it. They're, yeah, okay, thanks a lot. It's not going to happen again. And he'll usually tell his whole bench right there and then. Is is that because of the level? Because I know in high school football, a racial or anti-gay slur is automatic unsportsmanlike conduct. And, and I mean, the one time that I didn't hear it, but it was used uh, – the the, the 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 white hat the head referee ejected the player first offense you're gone so yeah. is it is it because it's it's at a higher level you give the players more leeway um i think this is the way i see it. i mean yeah there are rules that say you know you, you there are penalties you can call and all that stuff um but if it's something that's that's said in a casual way where there's no malice to it. And it's kind of, well, there's no intent and malice to it in the sense that I'll, I'd rather address it the way I do rather than come yeah. off, come off with, you know, guns ablaze and cause then I look like, you know, RoboCop going around trying to save the world. Um, where I'd rather just address it and try, you know, give him, you know, try to realize his own mistake. Cause most of the time, like I said, they just say it out of ignorance. They don't even know what, like they don't even realize the implication of what they're saying. Uh, and then if you kind of bring it up, it's like, oh, and then the light bulb wheels on. They're like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, now it's different if a guy comes over, you know, and yells across the ice with the whole everybody, in, you know, everyone in the rink here is everyone on the ice here. He calls him, comes across and off the ice and go. He calls the guy an effing faggot right across the ice, really loud. That's different. That's he'll take a seat for that right on the spot. There's no, there's no leeway there. But if you're just talking to a guy and saw whatever you're a fag, like that's. I can address that in a in a kind of non-confrontational way, whereas the other one has more of a malice to it. Uh, or obviously, if it's directed to me, whether I was straight or gay, I would you know take a seat either way. Um, but so yeah, that's kind of how I approach it. And so far, it's worked. Most I'd say 99% of the time, it's worked pretty in my favor. It's worked pretty well. Well, what is it about? I mean, 
we have had out professional football players, baseball players, basketball players. Um, in the case of Jason Collins and Michael Sam, people actually who played, you know, while active. We've never had a publicly gay NHL player, coach, referee, or anything. And yet the perception I always had, oh, Canada is so much more ahead of the U.S., it's much more, you know, progressive, and and they have all these players from the Nordic countries. Why do you think hockey, and they have You Can Play projects, are there, why do you think hockey has kind of lagged behind the rest of the sports? What it is about the culture or makeup of hockey that you think leads to that? I don't know. I think it has to do with what I said before, honestly. It's just that it's 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 such a – there's two things. So what I said – well, first thing is what I said before in the sense that, um, you know, on the ice you almost have your guard up, so you don't want to – you don't want to give the the opponent anything to kind of, you know, uh, chirp at you or get get under your skin for whatever reason. Even even though it's obviously it's ridiculous. Um, but and the second thing I think is that hockey is one of those sports where it's not like football where you know there's on the team you're 50 or 60 guys and you know you may not see you may not see half of them for you know except during, you know except when you cross paths in the locker room or you know on the buses or whatever. Um, and hockey, it's, it's just as physical as, 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 uh, football, if not more physical. Uh, and it's on your team, you're only 20 guys. Uh, that's all 22, maybe 23 tops. And you're traveling around, you're living with these guys for, especially in the minor leagues, you're living with these guys, uh, probably in apartments and on the road, uh, for seven, eight months a year. Uh, and, you know, you go on a bus with them, especially um, in, like I said, in minor leagues, they, they you know, don't have the luxury of charters and all that stuff. They're on buses, sleeper buses, and they're li- literally living with these, with these 20 guys for six, seven, eight months at a time. And uh, this is kind of brotherhood that, you know, that that happens. And it's one of those things that, you know, you know, you hear all the time, you don't want to be a distraction. Well, that's probably one of them, even though it, I don't think it's a distraction or it, maybe it will be for 48 hours and then it ends. Um and then the other thing is um, you just don't want to be at the end of the day you just don't want to be different you don't want to you don't want to have some another target on your back on the ice you don't want to it's just yeah it's just something I don't know it's something about the hospital I can't really explain it uh, but it makes it's in in my head I understand it but it's really hard to explain <laughs> um, yeah There's something else I mean kind of talking about something else you. you you mentioned in your story uh, a shooting at your school. What? Yeah. But I, I didn't get much more detail than that. And, and obviously, you know, I'm sure <clears throat> we had a yet another mass shooting in the United States. What what happened? And, and I'm curious, having lived through that, what is the next year of your life like after you experience something like that? Um, it's It was a really weird year. And I say weird because it happened when I was 17. Um, and like I said, I was, um, maybe 20 or 25 feet away from the shooter and I had to dodge it and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, people around me were shot and all this stuff. And so having to deal with that was almost like, I was 17. So I didn't really, at first I didn't really know what was going on. Um, for the first six months, like for the first week, obviously I was, I was a mess. Um, but it's, it's this weird thing that happened that, um, for the next six months, I kind of, at, at the time, I thought, oh, I'm I'm fine, like just not, you know, I'm totally fine. But it was really, 
just me shut, you know, my mind, my emotions completely shutting off. Uh, and also, I wasn't out yet, and I was still dealing with all that stuff because uh, I didn't, I didn't even know I was gay. Uh, and I so I just kind of shut down for about six months to a year. Uh, and then when I started getting, it was weird. I shut down to the extent that I had no problem talking about it in, in quite, actually, quite in detail. Uh, and it wouldn't affect me because I was just completely numb to it. And then uh, as I got older, I it started kind of creeping back into my mind, and it's almost like it was a it was a retroactive PTSD that that it wasn't PTSD in the sense that I woke up in the middle of the night with cold sweats, uh, you know, uh, or in, or had dreams of of being shot at or whatever. I mean that happened at some point, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know every night or that bad. It still happens sometimes, but it's nothing, you know, I think it's just whatever's left over. But it, it was more of a PTSD that affected me. In, in a, it hit me more as a depression rather than as a, you know, those, you know, sleepless nights with uh, the, the sweats and all that stuff were kind of, you know, turning a corner and being nervous or, or being in a crowd and being nervous. That wasn't so much of an issue. It was more just it turned into a depression for me because I never dealt with it properly, um, which I should have. Uh, and then on top of that, I was closeted and I couldn't figure that out. Uh, and then when I did figure out if I, it's funny, as soon as I, you know, figured out that I was gay, uh, I came out four months later to everybody, my whole family, friends, and everyone, and everyone was cool with it. And I thought, and at the time I thought, okay, that's done, let's move on with my life. Uh, and I was at 22, and I thought the worst of my depression was behind me. Uh, but little did I know, it actually got a whole lot worse uh, for the next probably two and a half years. Yeah, after you came out, you sort of went into a major depression, and you talked about how music was one of the things that kind of got you through it. You talk about what role music played. Yeah, um, I mean, I play. I've been playing drums ever since I'm seven. I was in a band for five years in my late teens, early early twenties, um, and I, then I picked up some piano too. So I wanted to. I like. I can. I like. I wanted to write a little bit, and uh, I'm not very good at piano, but I have the basic structure down. Uh, I'm definitely first and foremost a drummer, uh, but I always music always resonated with me, uh, kind of nat- instinctively, naturally. It's one of those things that it's my other passion in life um, besides uh, officiating hockey and, and hockey. But um, I think it, well, yeah, well, without an exaggeration, music saved my life. I mean, I'd, it's it's amazing how you can listen to a you know a very depressing or sad song when you are in that depressive and sad state, and be able to break down and cry and you know, from the outside, it looks like that person's going through hell, which is true. But in that moment, you actually—that's one of the most liberating things you can do, and it's almost, it almost feels good to do it, which is so weird and contradictory. But it's just one of those things that it's a way of releasing, and it works. Uh, like I say in my piece, um, talking about my depression got me out of it, but the music got me through it. And before you're ready, before I was ready to talk about it, I uh, I turned to music. That was my first thing, and. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like I said, it undoubtedly saved my life. Well, we certainly appreciate you you coming on and sharing your story with us, and um, print, and, and and talking about it today, all the way from Knoxville. Trust me, Litton's the hamburger and the cake. You're gonna you're <laughs> gonna thank me later. Trust me. Your 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 fellow officials will thank me later. Yeah, for, yeah, we're all gonna go out for dinner after. So yeah, I'm gonna tell them I got I got a spot. So I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> I already I already have it pulled up here on my laptop as we speak. So it was featured in the best hundred hamburgers in the country a, a, a few years back. 
Okay, so yeah, we got to try it. Yeah. Well, right great. Here. Thanks for being our thanks for being our guest today, and uh, like to have you on again at some other point. Maybe we'll actually talk real hockey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely. Whenever you need me, just uh, you know where to get me. Great. Well, um, everyone check out Dre's story on Outsports, um, and thanks so much for being our guest. Thanks. Take care, guys. I mean, he really is very articulate when he talks about his depression and stuff, and so uh, I think really people need to go read his story because it is interesting, as you said, said the stuff, the external stuff was all positive, and yet internally people still wrestle with it. So the story we keep yeah, well, telling, and that's why these stories are powerful. Yeah, well, we're running out of time, though. So <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by AT&T, mobilizing your world. You cannot forget that, our good friends at AT&T. I was just going to say it. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure if Sid will be traveling next week. Uh, if he is, I'll be on with someone as a guest host, some guest, some mystery guest. But until then, we will talk to you next week.